the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. Leading the right out of the ashes, this is The Right Take. How is it going, everybody? Welcome, 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 one and all. This is episode number 98 here of The Right Take. I'm your host, Eric Lendrum, here not with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff. Sorry, guys, uh, for the bit of the hiatus there. Jacob is still down in the trenches, as he always is, fighting the good fight. Uh, he is going to be out of commission for just a little while while he continues this good fight. But don't worry, guys. Don't worry. The show must go on. Come rain, come shine, come snow, come sleet. The show must go on. And it will, I assure you, as we continue our long march forward to episode number 100. We will have some more guests on and some guest fill-in hosts as we have had before. But for today, I'm going to give you guys a solo episode. And there's no shortage of content to talk about here, guys. There's a little backlog of stuff I did want to talk about first. Again, some of the smaller topics that I, my, my niche interests, elections and whatnot, that I really want to talk about. I am going to hawk one of my own writings, uh, my latest commentary piece for American Greatness, on why scandals are dead. I'm going to give you uh, my opinion on the latest developments with the 2024 field. And, of course, for the big question, one of the biggest 
cultural shifts, I think, of our time, one of our biggest pop cultural shifts, one of our biggest mass media shifts that I think we have ever seen, uh, as indicated by the title of this episode already, guys. Yes, it has to do with Tucker Carlson. Hashtag, we're so back, folks. We thought we weren't back. We thought it was so over. Now it turns out we are more back than we have ever been before. Tucker, you can't keep a good man down. That man cannot be stopped and will not be stopped. So before we get to that and how Tucker may have single-handedly killed cable news television as we once knew it, Let's first go back to 2024. I love talking 2024. Um, so many great things lately, guys. I mean, yes, President Trump had that legendary CNN town hall. And oh, man, I, I have plenty of thoughts on that. I mean, of course, you won't be surprised to hear, as the huge Trump fan that I am, I think he killed it. I think it was phenomenal. I think he won big league. I think he absolutely gave an incredible performance that realistically was even better than most of his rallies recently. He gives some great rally speeches. Don't get me wrong. But that town hall was something else. He was fantastic. Just dunking on that stupid moderator who used to be a conservative, by the way, folks. Caitlin Collins claimed to be a conservative and now makes her famous. Oh, I've seen the light. Now I'm a good little liberal like I should be. So he did great there. The audience loved him. CNN is just coping and seething. The whole mainstream media is coping and seething. It was fantastic. But that's a discussion for another time. So 2024. We currently have we, we have another candidate who has just jumped into the race recently. So we now have five major Republicans on the primary side. And I do want to talk a bit about briefly about the entrance of the most recent candidate, Mr. Larry Elder. Yes, the same Larry Elder, the radio host, the longtime radio host who ran for governor of California in the recall election in 2021, which, of course, did not succeed. But he did very well in that election. As we talked about before, we covered the recall election back when it was happening here on The Right Take, and now he's decided he's going to run for president. So I, uh, my, my first question is, why? Why? And, and let me be clear, let me preface this too. Kind of like what we did when we talked about Vivek Ramaswamy in our long take episode on what is woke. We had criticisms of Vivek Ramaswamy, even though we, Jacob and I both agreed we like him enough, and he, we both actually came to the agreement he is the second best Republican running right now, I think by a considerable amount. He's miles behind President Trump, but then he's miles ahead of the rest of the field. I feel kind of the same way about Larry Elder. I, I like Larry Elder a lot. I, am, I do like him, but I don't know why he is running now that the field has taken the shape that it has already taken. Um, he actually already has kind of established himself uh, going forward to this election as he's tacking more of a never Trump lane than anything else, which is surprising because he, he's a solid conservative. He was supportive of Trump before, but in an interview he did uh, with California radio host Jennifer Horn in November, sh uh, shortly after the midterms, like about a week after the midterms, he, this is before he announced, of course, this is when there was speculation he may run for president. He right out the gate, right after the midterms, had some not great things to say about President Trump and went straight to bat for Ron DeSantis. And I've got that uh, that clip here for you guys, courtesy of Rumble. You are traveling all over, I know. And uh, before we chat about that, let's talk about a couple of things. First, we have on tap the big announcement scheduled for Donald Trump tomorrow. He's jumping into the race for the presidency in 2024. A lot of media establishment types are trying to turn this into a civil war, I believe, between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis hasn't said he's running yet, but certainly there is stuff happening behind the scenes. And uh, what do you make of that? Do you think there's room for both of them? Or do you feel like I do where it should be maybe Trump then DeSantis, not Trump versus DeSantis? 
Well, the media doesn't need to make it into a civil war. I think Donald Trump has already fired the first shot by calling him Ron Sanctimonious uh, and saying that but for Donald Trump, he would not have become governor and that he had some dirt on Ron uh, that he may put out in the event that Ron uh, decides to run. So I think the, uh, the first volley has already been fired by, uh, by Mr. Trump. So right out the gate, he just goes straight to Ron DeSantis' defense, just, you know, declares, oh, Trump fired the first shot. I think the media doesn't need to create this conflict. Even that That's what they were doing all along. The media was always trying to stoke some kind of a conflict between President Trump and an up-and-coming conservative Republican in the same mold as his, you know, populist, America-first, nationalist agenda. Except, of course, DeSantis really isn't any of those things he's just pretending to be. But the point being that the media was creating this trap, and DeSantis fell into it first by allowing himself to be hoodwinked by these never-Trump billionaires, the Ken Griffins, and the Paul Singers, and now Peter Thiel supports him, Rupert Murdoch supports him, and yes, George Soros supports him. So, And then he was being all cutesy, like, who, who run for president? <laughs> Me? <laughs> Maybe, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, to the point that President Trump had no point, had no choice left but to attack, you know, to call him out, like, hey, you're, you're going to be coy about this and pretend you're going to run against me? Fine, let's play ball. So to see him go straight for defending DeSantis is unfortunate. Uh, with that being said, he, because what I would have said up to this point is he would be smart to run a solid conservative outsider campaign that stays away from attacking Trump. Unfortunately, that that uh, mantle has already been claimed by Vivek Ramaswamy. And that leads me to the main problem here with Larry Elder's campaign. Realistically, he's got no lane to occupy in this field already, which is five candidates running. He's got no field to occupy. People who want to vote for a political outsider, they'll just go for Trump or maybe Vivek Ramaswamy. People who want to vote for, you know, uh, principled conservatives, you know, because they really don't like Donald Trump. They want, you know, uh, someone who will bring, you know, no chaos to the Republican Party. Blah, 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 blah. They'll vote for Nikki Haley or, of course, if he jumps in, they'll vote for DeSantis. But if not DeSantis, then maybe someone like Nikki Haley. Uh, people who want to support outright never Trumpers, they've got Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, who's running an explicitly never Trump campaign. And don't forget, John Bolton said that he is going to run for president as a Republican, explicitly anti-Trump. And apparently Chris Christie may jump in very soon. He's set to make an announcement sometime, I think this month or maybe early June. Who knows? And lastly, uh, even if there was a lane for, you know, boomers who want a virtue signal about how they're not racist, so they want to support a black conservative, they'll just go for Tim Scott. He's going to jump in any day now. He's got an exploratory committee formed, and he's going to announce sometime uh, later this month. So every possible lane that Larry Elder could occupy, unfortunately— is, is already taken up. He's got just no path forward, unfortunately, which is a shame because, again, I, I like him. I, I really like what he did in California because, remember, in that recall election, I'll just summarize it here real quickly, that, which we knew, I knew it was never going to succeed. It was never going to get rid of Gavin Newsom. That being said, it was still going to be even more problematic because, up for the longest time, the would-be Republican standard bearer was going to be former San Diego mayor Kevin Falconer, who's a flaming rhino, never Trumper, pro-gun control, pro-abortion, pro-mass immigration, increased taxes, believes in global warming, pro-gay marriage, doesn't like Trump, the quintessential rhino. He is, again, the California Republican Party has just been drooling over this guy for years. They were getting ready to finally, this is our time. Kevin Falconer's finally going to make his big splash. Then Larry Elder just comes in like a wrecking ball and crushes Falconer. And again, yes, the recall did ultimately fail, but Larry Elder crushed it on the ballot of replacement candidates. He got 48% of the vote overall. He got 3.5 million votes. The next highest candidate was a Democrat, a, a YouTuber, I guess like business real estate advice YouTuber named Kevin Paffrath. Came in second 
9.6%, 700,000 votes. So again, Larry Elder was the only replacement candidate who got over a million votes, let alone over 3 million. He got 3.5 million. Falconer, by the way, got 590,000 votes, so a measly 8%. So Larry Elder just basically ended Kevin Falconer's political career. And other, you know, rhino Republicans who had no business running, like uh, John Cox, the former gubernatorial nominee of 2018, uh, Kevin Kiley, the assemblyman, uh, never Trumper assemblyman, who's now uh, unfortunately a member of Congress. Uh, Larry Elder put an end to that bid, basically. Kevin Kiley was kind of hoping to be a dark horse there. Ultimately, thankfully, failed at that. So I like what Larry Elder did. I, I like that. He, and I, I like his honesty, actually. In his uh, a recent interview he gave, he acknowledged, you know, because he was asked uh, by the interviewer of what do you think that uh, the idea that President Trump won't engage in the Republican primary debates. Larry Elder said, well, of course, I wish he would debate, but I can see why he's not going to because I did the exact same thing when I ran for governor. Infamously, Larry Elder refused to participate in any of the primary debates with Falconer and Cox and Kylie and the rest because he was the front runner by every polling. The moment he jumped in, every single poll had him as the front runner by a landslide, which, of course, ended up being the result. So he knew he stood to gain nothing from doing these debates. It was only going to be a risk to himself. He couldn't possibly go any higher than he already was. He could only go lower by subjecting himself to a circular firing squad from all the others that those debates would have been. So he was transparent and he was honest about that, which is fair. Um, honestly, though, again, with no lane to occupy and no path forward, unless he's campaigning, um, once again, the idea, oh, he's auditioning for VP or whatever, maybe. Realistically, I think he would have been much better off just running for the U.S. Senate. The U.S. Senate election coming up here in California in 2024 to replace the Crypt Keeper, Dianne Feinstein, who returned to Capitol Hill looking like a literal skeleton. My goodness, that those are horrifying images. There's like no skin on her bones, folks. There's no skin on her bones. Her fingers, all you see are just the bones. It, it's, it's really some terrifying stuff. I would have rather he just run for Senate. I think that's e even more so than governor. Forget governor. He should run for Senate because there's absolutely no good Republicans running for the U.S. Senate right now. There's, there's one candidate, there's one somewhat prominent candidate, I guess, running in that field. And that's Eric Early. He's a lawyer who twice back to back lost the nomination for attorney general of California in 2018 and 2022. So he never even won the nomination, let alone go on to lose the general election. Then he was the nominee in the 28th congressional district in 2020. So between those attorney general elections where he got destroyed by Adam Schiff, that's Adam Schiff's district. So of course he got absolutely pulverized. Uh, Schiff got 73 to early 27%. And now, by all accounts, Adam Schiff is going to be the front runner for the Democrat nomination for this race. So basically, this guy says, like, oh, I, I may not have beaten Adam Schiff in his own congressional district, but I can beat him here, guys. Don't worry. I'm totally going to beat him. So no, we, we need someone serious running in this, uh, in this Senate race, especially because there are three prominent Democrats running against each other. You got Schiff, you've got Katie Porter, and you've got Barbara Lee. So that's going to be split pretty nicely. All you need is one good Republican running to guarantee a Republican goes to the general election. So we don't have another Democrat versus Democrat fight like we had in 2016 and 2018, those Senate races there. So, uh, I mean, I think it's too late at this point. He is committed to running for president. So that's not going to happen, I guess. But, you know, best of luck. I'll say this once again. I know I've been bashing him up to this point. But again, I like Larry Elder. And I'll say this much right now, speaking for myself. He's my third favorite candidate in the Republican primary. I, uh, looking at the field right now, of all the people who have announced the people who are likely to run, including DeSantis. I mean, again, right now, it's President Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, and Larry Elder. They've announced Tim Scott, Exploratory Committee, he's probably going to run. John Bolton, the city's going to run. Uh, it's looking like Chris Christie will probably jump in. DeSantis, maybe. Anybody else, you know, a few other names being thrown around, like uh, Mike Pence, maybe. I doubt he'll run, but we'll see. Of all the possible candidates, 
the only ones I like that I would be happy to vote for are President Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Larry Elder. I would not want to vote for Asa Hutchinson. Obviously, he's a never-Trumper. Would not vote for Chris Christie. Would not vote for Nikki Haley, believe you me. Not uh, excited at all about the idea of voting for Tim Scott. Uh, so th those are the best candidates. I'll say that. Again, the three political outsiders. You know, calling me shocked that the three best candidates for the Republican nomination are outsiders. So best of luck to you, Larry Elder. Let's, uh, let's see where that takes you. So to move along here, I wanted to recap for you guys an article that I wrote recently for American Greatness, my latest commentary piece titled simply, quote, Beyond Scandal. And the hypothesis of my article here is something that I've been thinking about for a while now, because, of course, one of the things being covered in the media right now is the GOP, the Congressional GOP, the House Oversight Committee led by James Comer, the Judiciary Committee led by Jim Jordan. They're all going after the Biden family. They're all going after, you know, Hunter's business deals in Ukraine, China. I guess now they were involved in Romania somehow interesting. Um, and it's just nonstop wall-to-wall -wall, Hunter, Hunter, Hunter. There's talks that Hunter could get indicted for like tax fraud or something like that. Who knows what's even going on anymore. There's so much going on. It, none of it matters anymore. That, that's my argument basically, is that what once was considered a scandal in American politics simply doesn't count anymore. They, they don't shock people anymore. Nobody is shocked or offended or upset. No one's going to be clutching their pearls over the stuff that would have been career ending and campaign ending 15 years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago. Who knows? 2013, who knows? But I basically have four components of this argument. First, impeachment is dead. Impeachment has become completely politicized. What once was a historically rare procedure to remove a president for literal crimes and wrongdoings, corruption, illegal things, is now a political joke. It was used only twice in the first 222 years of American history up until the 90s. I'll explain that in a bit. With, of course, Andrew Johnson, the guy who took over for Lincoln, and then almost with Richard Nixon. Remember, Nixon was not actually impeached, thankfully, but they, of course, tried to. Then comes along Bill Clinton and the Blue Dress and Monica Lewinsky. Of course, the impeachment ultimately failed. And Bill Clinton's approval ratings, actually, at the start of the scandal, people, of course, were appalled. Like, oh, president had an affair in the Oval Office. This is terrible. Then by the end of the impeachment, sympathy had gone up for the Clintons just inexplicably. Like, oh, what do you know? The people suddenly think, oh, those Republicans are just being meanie heads. They're just being so mean and bullying those poor Clintons. And in the 1998 midterms, four years after the historic Republican Revolution in 94, led by Newt Gingrich, Democrats actually saw a few gains in the House of Representatives, and lost no seats in the Senate. This, of course, marked the first time since Reconstruction, the end of the Civil War, that the historic trend known as the six-year itch was broken. That, of course, refers to uh, when a president's party, a second-term president, is facing the, their sixth-year midterms, their party suffers staggering losses, even worse. A president's parties almost always lose in midterms, but especially in the second midterm of a two-term president's uh, tenure. So this did not occur for Bill Clinton. This did not occur for the Democrats. That trend, of course, has since repeated several more times now since then between, uh, well, the regular midterm elections of 2002 under George Bush right after 9-11, uh, President Trump, of course, in 2018, Republicans gained seats in the Senate. And we saw it, of course, with the Democrats under Biden in 2022, where they also gained a seat in the Senate while losing seats in the House. So it's the midterm trend is kind of being shaken up more recently in just the 21st century. But it was a big deal back then when Democrats managed to defy all expectations and historical trends. And that was direct response, a backlash against this politicized impeachment. So since then, of course, since Clinton, impeachment has been thrown around for every single president since then. They talked about impeaching Bush Jr. for war crimes in the Middle East. They talked about impeaching Obama for Benghazi or birth certificates or what have you. 
Of course, they did impeach Trump twice on, pardon the pun, trumped up spurious charges. And now they're already talking about Biden. You know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced a resolution to impeach Biden for whatever. I don't even remember what it was. They're talking about impeaching Biden or maybe impeaching some cabinet members, which I think would be a better strategy than going for Biden himself. But the point being that it's just become impeachment, which was once supposed to be rare for a reason, has now become as commonplace as elections themselves. It's lost all of the legal and historical weight, and now it's just a political tool. So no one even cares about that anymore. Secondly, uh, pol polarization, of course, plays a huge part in this. Both sides have become so polarized that neither one is now willing to attack their own sides or hold their own sides accountable over scandals, be they real or fake. In the case of the left, of course, you have a lot of genuine scandals. Again, the Hunter Biden laptop is real. No one can dispute that now. But they have the mainstream media on their side, which, of course, covered up the story. The media will run cover for Democrats and insist there are no scandals whatsoever. And subsequently, Democrat voters and pundits and politicians will cite this media coverage as proof, quote unquote, that there are no wrongdoings. Oh, well, the media says we did nothing wrong, so clearly we did nothing wrong. The, subsequently, you have the Republican voters who are now growing increasingly frustrated of the mainstream media's hackery and bias are now prepared to stand behind any accused Republican purely out of spite against the mainstream media, whether they're guilty or not. Of course, in cases like President Trump or Justice Brett Kavanaugh or others who are falsely accused, they correctly stand behind those people because they can see, oh, this is just made up garbage. They're just trying to turn us against our guys. But now they're even willing to defend Republicans who are obviously guilty as sin. Case in point, we talked about him before on this show, Mr. Pinocchio, George Santos, the man who lied about Everything from his family's history to his sexuality to his criminal record, everything. He lied about everything except maybe his name, and maybe he even lied about that. Who knows? Now, having just been arrested on federal charges, Republicans are more willing to stand by him at this point. There are Republicans on social media saying like, oh, he's actually, we love his fighting spirit, that he's not backing down. The D.C. Young Republicans recently invited uh, Congressman Santos to speak at one of their events as a guest of honor. So... This, I think, directly is a response to the bias that, again, says Democrats can get away with literally murder. So Republicans are now finally so fed up and so done, they just throw in the towel and say, you know what? If you're going to support your guys, no matter what they do, then we're going to do the same. Why can't we also stand by our guys, even if they're guilty, just to say, screw you? So that, of course, I think that shift has finally happened, and I think that's for the better. Third, and I think this is very, very crucial— the ongoing and soon-to-be-coming generational shift will irreversibly change the standard, the bar. It will be significantly lowered, the standard for what qualifies as a truly shocking scandal. Millennials and Zoomers especially, who grew up on the internet and or social media, their dirt is far more likely to be dug up in the near future for anybody to find. You know, they're on Snapchat, the Zoomers on OnlyFans, among other things. It's far more likely, whether whether it's nudes or whether it's things like Google Docs, where a bunch of high school kids, you know, in their edgy phase, come together to type the most racial, uh, most offensive racial slurs imaginable. That's what happened with Kyle Kashuk, the Parkland uh, survivor, who had his Harvard admission rescinded because he was typing the N-word and stuff on a Google Doc with his other classmates, because they're just a bunch of kids being edgy, all right? We all had that edgy phase where we just want to say shock and horror things, you know, to, to, to shock people, because it's funny at the time to see people react like that. So there's going to be a lot more of that. And Kyle Kashif is a perfect example. Like, yeah, he lost the Harvard admission, but he's still doing all right. He's still got a career as a conservative commentator, you know, Daily Wire, what have you, TPUSA. So he's doing all right. And that's just one example. 
It's kind of like with pop culture, right? Pop culture in the aftermath of celebrities like Lady Gaga and Miley Cyrus, who would just go out of their way to shock people as much as possible with their outfits or performances or what have you. The population as a whole, but especially younger people, are just so numb to what was once considered shocking 10 to 15 years ago. So when these generations rise to power and start getting elected to more office, like, you know, AOC did, like Madison Cawthorn or Katie Hill and others, they will be far less likely to care. They and the voters, especially, not just the politicians, but the voters will be way less likely to care about stuff that would have been seen as career ending, you know, a decade ago, lest they, you know, throw stones from their glass houses. But just think, just this one example, I love this example. Howard Dean ran for president as a Democrat in 2004, and he didn't win the Iowa caucus, but he was still seen as a, a strong candidate. His campaign completely derailed just because he went Bleah! at a campaign rally in like a high pitched, like cracking voice that people were just like, oh, what in the world was that? That was unprofessional. That was weird. We can't have a man who sounds like that getting elected president. If that happened today, you know if anything, that moment certainly would go viral on TikTok. Young people would love him just for that alone. And his poll numbers would go up, if anything, right? That was a scandal 20 years ago, 19 years ago. Today, that would be a boost to his campaign. The bottom line is this. Now more than ever, Republicans need... I know this is going to be hard because, again, the generational shift. I'll come back to that in a bit. Republicans need to ditch these futile attempts at trying to nail Biden and other Democrats for conventional scandals, quote unquote, the Hunter Biden nonsense, the classified document scandal, well, what have you, FBI, whatever, Anthony Blinken arranging the, the Hunter Biden Russian disinformation laptop letter because, you know, the Biden campaign told him to, he told former CIA director Mike Morrell to do it, and Anthony Blinken was rewarded with a secretary of state position. All this stuff, none of that matters. None of it matters, all right? Nobody cares. I'm convinced that the only reason the GOP is still pursuing this is because it's mostly boomer bait. It's appealing to the baby boomers, the last like substantial generation in terms of size, how many are left, that remembers the days of what it was like when this kind of stuff actually mattered. When, yeah, yeah 15 years ago, even something like irrefutable, incontrovertible, you know, the media will still kind of say like, oh, some of the laptop stuff, maybe, maybe, maybe. something like the Hunter Biden uh, child support thing. He got a stripper pregnant out of wedlock, and she now has a daughter that DNA testing literally confirmed as his. The courts recognize that it is his daughter. He's been ordered to pay child support. He refuses to do it, so now there's a court case going on in Arkansas right now where the judge apparently has been tearing Hunter several new ones. Good for him. But that's beyond confirmed fact. 15 years ago, that would have sank any chance Biden had of being president right then and there. You know, remember when it was a scandal that Sarah Palin's daughter, Bristol, uh, got pregnant as a teenager out of wedlock in the 2008 campaign? What a scandal that was then. It would have been, it would have been a scandal for Biden, too, if Biden tried to run 2008 or, uh, as uh, you know, the nominee, say, if he were the nominee. Uh, of course, he ended up being the vice presidential nominee. Imagine if this had happened with his vice presidency. Obama would have kicked him off the ticket and picked somebody else, like Hillary or who knows. Now it doesn't matter anymore. None of this stuff shocks None of it matters. And my fear is that if the Republicans just keep marching blindly forward, trying to make 2024 a referendum on Hunter Biden and Chinese, Ukrainian deals, what have you, they're going to lose because nothing's going to come of this anyway. We already know they have the system rigged in their side, the deep state, the legal system, what have you. Biden's never going to be held accountable. Hunter Biden's never going to be held accountable. He may get a slap on the wrist over the this tax stuff, what have you. And then all the media is going to do is run with that to say, oh, look, look, Hunter was, you know, slightly 
partially punished for this with like a five-day probation sentence or whatever. This is proof that the stuff against Trump isn't a witch hunt. It is a fair justice system because they went after Hunter too. So realistically, a Hunter indictment or what have you, a non-indictment as it would be, would not be good for us. It would just, you know, take away more from Trump's, uh, President Trump's persecution narrative. So nothing's going to be done. We already can accept that as a fact. No one is going to hold Biden accountable, Hunter or otherwise. So to keep trying to make this about Hunter Biden and not the substantial issues is the mistake. That, of course, means what the GOP should be doing in 2024 is campaigning on the issues, the proven winners like the culture war stuff, critical race theory, transgenderism, and other crucial America first issues like the immigration crisis, which is about to get a whole new level of badder than bad with the end of Title 42, campaign on these issues where they have nowhere to run then you may have a chance. And I'm sure, of course, President Trump will lead the way on this. I mean, the opening, his opening remarks at the CNN town hall, the first thing he talked about, the first one he listed when he started listing all the problems of the Biden administration, the first thing he mentioned was the border crisis. And that is deliberate. That is because immigration has always been his number one issue. That is still, I believe, the dominant issue of our time, even more so than the culture war. Culture war is number two. Immigration number one. Keep talking about these issues, and I'm sure President Trump will lead the way on this. And the GOP will have a chance to win. They absolutely could still win. Will they heed to President Trump's advice and follow his lead? Who knows? But we shall wait and see. But in the meantime, that is my suggestion is just stop promoting Hunter Biden stuff. Nobody cares anymore. It's not a winning issue. And certainly for these younger voters in another 10, 15 years, when there's even more millennials and Zoomers to deal with, they are they could not care less what Hunter Biden does in his spare time with his crack pipe or his Russian prostitutes or snorting Parmesan cheese because he thinks it's crack, what have you. All right, so for the main topic, oh, this is a good one, folks. This is great stuff. So, <laughs> Tucker Carlson and the end of cable news as we once knew it. Uh, I, I like to call this, uh, <laughs> if anything, what happened on Monday, April 24th, uh, a night of the Long Knives Media Edition. Because remember, what happened is Tucker got fired from Fox News. We know that now for a fact. He was fired. But on the same day, just a couple hours after the story about Tucker broke, Don Lemon was also fired from CNN. And I said, oh, this is like the, the media equivalent of when Farrah Fawcett died on the same day that Michael Jackson died. So she she died first earlier that day. I remember the summer 2009 fairly well, the summer that celebrities left and right were just dropping like flies, Billy Mays, Walter Cronkite, and of course, yes, Michael Jackson, the most infamous one. Farrah Fawcett died on that day, and then a few hours later after initial coverage of, oh, Farrah Fawcett passed away, boom, Michael Jackson is dead. And now it's all the, the aerial helicopter coverage of the UCLA Medical Center where he died and his mansion in L.A., and just people forgot all about Farrah Fawcett, unfortunately. It's the same thing here with Tucker and Don Lemon. So, of course, uh, I first saw the reports from Disclose.tv on Twitter that had the statement on Tucker's uh, dismissal saying, quote, Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have agreed to part ways. We thank him for his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a contributor. Mr. Carlson's last program was Friday, April 21st. Fox News Tonight will air live at 8 p.m. Eastern starting this evening as an interim show helmed by rotating Fox News personalities until a new host is named. Then, of course, a few hours later, we get uh, Don Lemon posting to his Twitter account a picture of a written statement he typed out here. Uh, you can tell this reeked of the desperation of, hey, guys, look at me. I'm also important, too. Yeah, nobody cares, Don. People have already moved on from you, Don. L Lemon, or I guess Lamont. People really have fun dunking on him by calling him Lamont instead of Lemon. Quote, 
I was informed this morning by my agent that I have been terminated by CNN. I am stunned. After 17 years at CNN, I would have thought that someone in management would have the have had the decency to tell me directly. At no time was I ever given any indication that I would not be able to continue to do the work I have loved at the network. It is clear that there are some larger issues at play. With that said, I want to thank my colleagues and the many teams I have worked with for an incredible run. They are the most talented journalists in the business, and I wish them all the best. That was posted uh, April 24th at 12, 14 p.m. Eastern. And, oh, this was too good. So not even an hour later, 12, 59 p.m., uh, <laughs> that story was, um, shall we say, refuted by CNN's verified communications account at CNN PR. Quote, Don Lemon's statement about this morning's events is inaccurate. He was offered an opportunity to meet with management, but instead released a statement on Twitter. <laughs> so basically, the fool Lamont got himself fired because I guess management wanted to meet with him to discuss possible disciplinary measures. Apparently, he's been super sexist behind the scenes, what have you. They To talk maybe disciplinary measures, not necessarily firing, but, you know, reprimanding or what have you. And he just took that opportunity to rage quit and think like that. He was basically getting fired. So he's like, you know, you can't fire me. I quit. So then he posts this statement that gets him fired for speaking out of line and not, you know, talking accurately about what actually happened with regards to what was said to him. So he got himself fired. He, he's out of there and no one, absolutely no one is going to miss him whatsoever. You know, we don't miss Brian Stelter. We don't miss Fredo Cuomo and we will not miss Don Lamont. So CNN is slightly better off for it. Again, I know that's not saying much. It's a very low bar, but uh, I mean, he, he was just a sour presence at CNN anyway. Let's be honest. It's since been reported. This is an interesting little side note. Both Tucker and Lamont have hired the exact same lawyer to handle their respective firings. A guy who apparently has dealt with other media personalities after they are fired, including Fredo Como and Megyn Kelly. This, of course, this reveal does confirm, after some speculation, oh, did Tucker quit? Did he leave voluntarily? This confirms that Tucker was indeed fired, because after all, why would you lawyer up if you quit on your own? So uh, we'll see where that one goes. He has vowed to fight back against his employer. We'll come back to that in a bit. Tucker's departure definitely marks, I think, the final nail in the coffin. There were plenty of nails to go around, believe me. Uh, so get your tetanus shots, everybody, for this. But Tucker's departure could very well be the end of Fox News. I mean, maybe not right away, not yet, but soon. It certainly, right off the bat, is the end of Fox Nation. This, of course, cringe, this horribly cringe streaming service that they created. You know, sign up for a paid prescription for exclusive content. I talked to a bunch of my friends who were in media and otherwise. Nobody was signing up for Fox Nation. Nobody cared. In fact, I've been told by a very reliable source that Fox News was even giving away free subscriptions to Fox Nation to all of their employees just to artificially boost the membership numbers to say, oh, look how many people subscribed. They still, of course, will not give the exact numbers of how many have subscribed, which tells you all you need to know. When they won't tell you the numbers, that's when you know the numbers must not be very great. But then eventually they figured that, you know, they had to wrangle up their golden goose. So they forced Tucker to start producing programs for the for Fox Nation. They, he has like a daytime show called, he had rather, a show uh, called Tucker Carlson Today, you know, a daytime show done in more of a podcast style in the, in the daytime studio. And he was doing other like special investigative reports, going to the border and whatnot. And everybody I talked to who was subscribed to Fox Nation, every single one of them said, I'm not kidding, Everyone I asked said, 
oh, I've only signed up for Tucker Carlson. I only signed up for his content. So now that he's gone, as Breitbart reports, there was a flood of Twitter users announcing publicly that they had canceled their Fox Nation subscriptions because there's nothing else worth watching. What are they going to watch on Fox Nation? Tommy Lahren? Cassie Dillon? Of course not. People were there if they were there for Tucker and nobody else. So you've absolutely killed that. So let's see how much longer it takes for Fox Nation to finally die because that thing has been a sinking ship since it launched. Uh, But of course, his firing has also affected Fox News ratings on the actual TV channel. His old 8 p.m. hour plummeted from over 3 million viewers per night on average to just 1.65 million. Um, and every other major primetime slot on Fox News also saw massive plunges in the crucial age 25 to 54 demographic. The 6 p.m. hour decreased by 42%. 7 p.m. hour, 62%. 8 p.m. hour, Tucker's old slot, 75%. The biggest dropout of all of them. Right behind that, the 9 p.m. hour, that is, of course, Hannity, uh, 70%. 10 p.m., that I believe is Laura Ingram, 66%, and the 11 p.m. hour, a 49% drop. (laughs) Big yikes, folks. Big yikes. At the same time, of course, he does retain control, thankfully, of his Twitter account, at Tucker Carlson. And after a couple days, he posted his first video on Twitter after his firing, basically saying, oh, stay tuned, guys. Go to TuckerCarlson.com and stay tuned. That video clip got, in just one hour, got over 1.8 million views by the next morning. It was posted on a Wednesday night. By Thursday morning, it had over 15 million views, which is significantly more, exponentially more than what he was getting on Fox News. So that kind of tells you all you need to know, which of course led to speculation. Could he just take his show online? Like, is he going to go? There was a lot of speculation being thrown around. Is he going to go to, uh, is he going to go to another media outlet? Is he going to go to Daily Wire? Is he going to go to The Blaze? Uh, and of course the suggestion I stood by that I wish would happen that I said would be the best for him if he doesn't care about money. If it's about money, yeah, he would probably go to Daily Wire. Daily Wire could definitely pay him quite handsomely. But if he he doesn't care about the money because he's already fabulously wealthy as is and he cared about the message and the mission, he would do his own thing. And there were initial reports uh, a few, few more days after the firing that he was talking to Elon Musk, you know, the head of Twitter, about possibly doing something exclusively on Twitter. And then, sure enough, in another video posted to his Tucker Carlson account, he announced that he will, in fact, be launching his show, is relaunching his show as a Twitter exclusive. Because this this lines up nicely with what Elon Musk said he was going to do, that he was going to increase the emphasis on video content on Twitter. You know, longer, you know, the ability to post longer videos, especially if you're a verified account. You know, in addition to the Twitter spaces, you know, they had Periscope back in the day for live streaming, then they shut that down. But Elon Musk wants to bring back video content on Twitter as as a way to kind of rival YouTube, which is a great idea from, you know, again, from a competition standpoint. And Tucker is going to lead the way on that. So basically what this means, I think this is the symbolic death of cable news as we once know it, because Tucker's show soared to historic heights. You know, it took over for what was previously Bill O'Reilly's slot, and Bill O'Reilly previously had set records for the highest-viewed, highest-rated cable news show in modern history, and then Tucker took it to just a whole new level. He also became the highest-rated cable news show in modern television history. And we just went over those ratings, as I said, 75% drop in viewership, millions of views down overall across the network, but especially in that time slot. And then now he turns around and is getting millions and tens of millions of views just for a two-minute video on Twitter. And now he's taking a show to Twitter. So this lines up with what I've been saying for a while. The future of mass media is the internet. 
It is social media, and especially for discussing news and politics, it's podcasting. You look at people like Joe Rogan, Steve Bannon's War Room, Tim Pool's podcast, even Ben Shapiro, among others. Podcasting is the spiritual successor to mass media. In particular, I think it is the spiritual successor to talk radio in terms of its style and its appeal, you know, long-form content, uninterrupted, very simplistic in its approach, and I think that's a great thing. You know, talk radio is doing very well. TV has been dying for a while now. TV views in general have been on the decline, you know, not just for CNN and left-wing channels, and it's not just because they're going, you know, left-wing. It's not because of woke or whatever. It's just in general. People aren't watching cable TV anymore, cable satellite TV. Again, this is due to many, many things. This is due to older generations getting older and passing on. And as I've said before with my scandal talk, younger generations on the rise, millennials and Zoomers, I guarantee you are not sitting around watching CNN on TV. They're not, they're not doing that. They're not watching CNN. They're on social media. They're on Twitter. They're on YouTube. They're on TikTok. And that's how they consume their news and content. They're more likely to listen to Joe Rogan than they are to watch whoever's left at CNN. I don't know who's even left now that Fredo and Stelter and Lamont and all the others are gone. But all they have, realistically, shows like channels like CNN especially, all they have left is the fact that they're often played on TVs at airports and gyms. They have that going for them. And even then, people are barely watching their content. Why do you think CNN Plus was a miserable failure? After like a month? Not even a month? Nobody was signing up for CNN Plus. They were forced to shut it down. They at least had the decency to shut it down and admit it was a failure, unlike Fox with Fox Nation. But you got the same problem there. The generation that still watches traditional news, cable news, satellite TV news, are the baby boomers. And they ain't getting any younger. You know, they're they're watching CNN. They're watching Fox, what have you, on, on both sides, obviously, politically. They're not going to turn around and join streaming services. They're not going to go on social media. They're not going to go on TikTok. That's for darn sure. And as that generation gets older, and there's less and less of them, and more and more of millennials and, and Zoomers, that's going to be a problem for traditional cable news. And maybe it's for the best. Maybe because, again, internet might the internet might be slightly less awful for censorship than the mainstream media, and just in terms of sheer bias. Who knows? Because, again, you got a platform like Twitter. You have plenty of podcast platforms like the ones that host us, Podbean, and others that will publish anything. That stuff you would never see on the mainstream media. And that's going to be a massive shift. In terms of, you know, reach, garnering new audiences, being able to circumvent the mainstream media that once was the gatekeepers of the truth. You know, back when it was just the three TV channels way back in the 60s, that was the only place to get your news. That's changed completely now. That has changed, and I think will change forever. And this development with Tucker is symbolic of that. But I do want to acknowledge one thing, one very good thread on this, the most interesting thread I've read on this subject thus far, is from John Doyle, the host of the show Heck Off Commie, at, uh, on Twitter, at Comrade Doyle, and the Doyle is spelled D-O-Y-I-E, a capital I made to look like an L, I guess Comrade Doyle with an L was already taken, John Doyle, we love John Doyle here, folks, we're John Doyle respecters, he's great, we love him, he had an interesting thread on this on the day of the firing, and I want to read a bit of it here because I think this is worth talking about, even though I'm kind of going to disagree with Mr. Doyle here. But he said, quote, thread on Tucker leaving Fox. While Tucker will obviously be successful in anything he chooses to pursue after Fox, his departure is still a somewhat significant blow to the right. There is a phenomenon so widely observed that if I recall correctly, it's even been thoroughly covered by some of our favorite sociologists, which is the relationships between the baby boomer and his television. 
a generation whose concept of the world has almost entirely been molded by a television. This isn't entirely their fault, but it is nonetheless true. And they haven't exactly demonstrated a strong desire to abandon television in favor of new, more decentralized media online. End quote. That's exactly what I've been saying here is that the boomers are the last generation, I think, that was raised on traditional television, you know, the 60s, what have you. It's not the same for Gen X or Millennials or Zoomers. And again, once that generational shift happens completely, then it'll be a different story. Then TV will have nowhere to go and traditional TV as we know it. Even for everything in general, even shows for entertainment, you know, like AMC for shows like, you know, Breaking Bad or The Walking Dead, that's going to change completely. They're going to have to go entirely online. I know like shows like Survivor on CBS have already shifted almost completely online, just dumping more episodes like, you know, streaming in general will dump an entire season rather than episode by episode on a weekly basis because the habits now of younger generations is to binge watch everything over the course of 10 hours rather than tune in every single week like you would back in the days when Walking Dead was on. Uh, but back to Doyle's thread, quote, There exists a type of person who literally only watches Fox News or reads articles from or adjacent to Fox News. This person also happens to be a crucial component of our base. Very true. Quote, Yes, old media is being suffocated, but it's still important to have an established beachhead, especially if that happens to be the all-time most popular news program hosted on the most popular cable news network of this century. It's almost inconceivable that someone could fill Tucker's shoes. Writing staff with their ears to right-wing Twitter, greenlining discussions of anti-white sentiment policies, mainstreaming nationalist issues with greater articulation than Trump, etc., etc. But whoever fills his spot is still pretty much guaranteed millions of viewers a night. I know we want Fox to tank. Yes, we do. But we just don't have the organization for that to happen, and so it won't. That's a good point. Um... Because realistically, yeah, in terms of a conservative alternatives to Fox News, all you have uh, in terms of the TV scene, at least, you got Newsmax and you got OAN. And I've talked about this before, I think, maybe not on this podcast, but in the aftermath of the 2020 election, when Fox, of course, called Arizona five minutes after the freaking polls closed on the East Coast, polls hadn't even closed in Arizona yet. Um, and of course, they did not cover voter fraud and whatnot, not even Tucker. A lot of conservative voters, a lot of Trump supporters, rightfully, were finally done with Fox and they left Fox in droves. And at that point, uh, Newsmax and One America News, OAN, were on roughly equal ground, and it became, it was looking to be just a nice little relay race, pretty evenly matched, you know, two decent conservative networks with a handful of their own respectable uh, people, personalities and whatnot, and they were going to race to pick up more of those Trump supporters. But then, in the blink of an eye, Newsmax just suddenly took off from the starting line and, at the speed of light and left OAN in the dust. And they picked, they poached like the best people from OAN. They got like uh, Emerald Robinson and Jack Posobiec and others. They picked up more and more prominent names like Sean Spicer and Eric Bowling and whatnot. And now they are the decisive conservative news TV channel alternative to Fox News. That's where you know, like Trump supporters go. Like Newsmax will still stream Trump's rallies uninterrupted, just like Fox News used to do, but also conspicuously does not do anymore now that Rupert Murdoch supports Ron DeSantis. So, yeah, we, we do have that alternative, but of course, it's not nearly as big as Fox. It doesn't have nearly as much money as Fox. It is still good quality for what it is, but it's not the same as Fox. It does not have that same platform. Like, their 8 p.m. slot is not the same as Tucker's 8 p.m. slot. It could never hope to compete with what Tucker had. So back to John Doyle's thread here. Quote, Our voters will now be tuning into a far less accurate comprehension of our problems. Very true, because, again, to his point, that whoever replaces Tucker will not be the same as Tucker. You're not going to find someone more based than Tucker Carlson on Fox News at this point. 
Quote, you have to remember, these are the same people who cheered for George Bush and Mitt Romney. That they could be wrangled back into some refurbished pre-2016 right is not difficult to imagine at all. We only have a certain window left to work with baby boomers. In terms of our base, they have the greatest voting power and resources. It would be to our substantial benefit if they were tuning into somebody like Tucker Carlson instead of whoever will replace him. Mm -hmm. Again, Tucker will be successful and effective wherever he goes. But it is also true that despite it sucking, Fox News has historically been an important outpost for the right, and it probably will be for years to come until it slowly dies. That's very true, especially uh, not just with the decline in viewership and, you know, everything, especially with just recently. This happened right after they had to pay seven hundred and eighty seven million to Dominion voting systems over that garbage lawsuit of like, oh, you call us of stealing the election, even though they probably did engage in stealing the election that they demanded. They, they originally went for like uh, 1.5 or 1.6 billion. So they got half of what they were asking for. But that huge chunk out of Fox News is revenue and, and money overall. Then they turn around and fire their best guy. And now they're losing ratings like crazy. It's definitely going to really hurt them. This could, again, could be a fatal blow. And again, the passage of time, the passage of old generations. Rupert Murdoch does not have a lot of time left on this planet, folks. And when his left-wing sons and their even more viciously left-wing wives take over Fox, oh, it's it's going to be even worse. It's going to be barely conservative at that point. It'll be it'll be conservative like TMZ is conservative at that rate. <laughs> or like MTV, for that matter, which, of course, is also not around. It has joined the ranks of, uh, of Vice and BuzzFeed News. Ain't going to miss you. The last tweet here by John Doyle in this thread, quote, It is difficult to see how the most popular cable news host of all time losing his slot, which frequently broadcasted our ideas, is a net positive for us in the long run. That is true. That is true. Comrade Doyle, again, you make a great point. I, I really respect you and what you have to say. And he is right. I think, again, Tucker's going to do just fine. And if anything, his, again, this transition, this, you know, crossing the Rubicon moment, being led by him will mark the shift from traditional cable news to social media. But John Doyle is right. We still have a lot of baby boomers who make up the most significant portion of our base who still watch Fox News. And they, they still do. At least a million, at least 1.3 or 1.6 million still watch Fox News, which is still a substantial number, especially when you narrow it down to how many of those are in crucial swing states. How many of them are the former blue-collar Rust Belt, you know, worker, working class voters that we really need to flip states like Wisconsin and what have you. Because, yeah, who's left of Fox News? It is fun to play like the what I like to call the uh, the lifeboat sweepstakes of Fox News. You know, you say you say Fox News is the Titanic. There's one lifeboat. Who do you put in that lifeboat? I, for the record, would say the two people who come to my mind certainly are Greg Gutfeld and Jesse Waters. Greg Gutfeld, who, of course, is kind of, he is to the late night scene what Tucker Carlson was to the primetime scene. His show, Gutfeld on Fox News, does dominate all the other garbage late night hosts like uh, like Kimmel and, and Myers and all those other, Colbert, all these losers who are just left-wing hacks with clapping seals for audiences, clapping and barking obediently. So Gutfeld does well there, and he is pro-Trump, I do believe. He He's a little libertarian on some issues, but he is a good guy overall. And I do like Jesse Waters. I've liked Jesse Waters since the Bill O'Reilly's day, uh, Bill O'Reilly days, and I think he's also a pretty pro-Trump guy. Um, but yeah, other than those two, I don't know, man. Some people say Judge Jeanine. I'm not really crazy about her. Same with Maria Bartiromo. Um, 
eh, I don't know if there's anybody really worth saving Fox other than those two guys. But even then, say you move Jesse Waters to the APM slot, right? Is Jesse Waters going to be super-based, national populist Tucker Carlson? Like, I really don't think so, folks. I really, really don't think so. And I like him, but yeah, Tucker, as John Doyle says here, represented a significantly rightward shift to an America First agenda being promoted rather than just, oh, what are the Republican talking points for today? What's Karl Rove saying today? What's Kevin McCarthy saying today? No, Tucker staked out a path that was much more pro-nationalist, populist, America First. Basically what President Trump was running on. And that's important. We need that. You're not going to get that from anybody else at Fox News, I really don't think. And like he says, Fox News does dictate what a lot of Republican voters may think. It could very well convince viewers that someone like Tim Scott or Nikki Haley is actually based and is actually, you know, the real future of the Republican Party. Even if they don't go all in on someone like DeSantis, they go for someone who's just as problematic as DeSantis, like a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley or anybody else, Chris Sununu, who have you. So... I get what he's saying here, and it is going to suck in the immediate future, the next few years, but I think it will not be that long before that shift finally comes, that generational shift, that age shift, when Fox is no longer relevant. And Tucker's a, a younger guy. He's certainly younger than, I think, most of Fox News' viewers. He's got a lot of time left. He absolutely could stake out his own claim here and make his own path forward like a Joe Rogan, basically like the conservative Joe Rogan, maybe, something like that. And I think any podcast he does absolutely could surpass viewership numbers of someone like Ben Shapiro or even someone, someone like Steve Bannon on War Room, who I really respect. I love that show. He's one of the most important conservative media influencers out there, I think. And Tucker will still be a very valuable voice. And some have even thrown out the speculation that, oh, could maybe Tucker maybe consider running for president one day? Who knows? I, I would not be against that idea. I think... Um, again, my heart for the second choice after President Trump, right after Trump, would have to be J.D. Vance. My heart still belongs to J.D. Vance for number two. Um, but I could see Tucker maybe being my number three, maybe tied with Glenn Youngkin, you know, as, as a top post-Trump candidate who I think will promote our values and our ideas in a way that is electable. That's the crucial thing. I think J.D. Vance definitely would have that electability with that articulate, as articulate as he is and still unapologetically nationalist. And Tucker would be the same. Tucker could be a phenomenon like Trump. Tucker could very well draw massive rally audiences. He could literally, every single one of his rallies could basically just be him sitting at a desk doing an episode of his show, doing his monologues, and people would go nuts for it. It'd be great. He basically, it's like a speaking tour, but it's also a presidential campaign. He's got money. He's got name recognition. He's got the outsider status. It's a universally known name. When you say Tucker, everyone knows who you're talking about. Kind of like with Trump. Everyone knows the name Trump when you say Trump. So... Of course, he has not been around nearly as long as Trump. He has not been a household name since the 80s like Donald Trump was. But the, the groundwork is there, I think, that Tucker could be a solid post-Trump candidate. But we'll have to wait and see, folks. We'll have to wait and see. But this is a massive generational shift. It's a massive shift in the mass media landscape. And again, short term, like John Doyle says, could be kind of bad for us. But as long as Trump is still on the scene, I will not worry too much about those viewers and those voters being swayed back in like a Karl Rove Bush neocon direction, as long as Trump is still around. And by the time Trump's no longer on the political scene, I think the end of cable news media will have come. Cable news, television, satellite TV will have come to an end, and we will have officially entered the social media and podcast era with someone like Tucker Carlson leading the way as an example of a man who dominated TV moving over to dominate the podcast scene. 
Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, right take slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting us and all that we do here for you on The Right Take, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys. <laughs>